This is episode 223 of IDRA Class Notes. Thurgood Marshall worked together with social scientists, which was this novel approach to lawmaking, and made an argument that, look, not only is it immoral, you know, legally not appropriate to separate people for the state to take action to separate people on the basis of race, but it also has this horrible impact on the social, emotional, and educational well-being of kids. And that's yet another reason that this violates the Constitution. And that was the argument. Hi, everyone. Welcome to IDRA's Class Notes podcast. My name is Morgan Craven. I am the National Director of Policy, Advocacy, and Community Engagement at IDRA. And I am very excited to be here today with Paige Duggins-Clay, IDRA's new Chief Legal Analyst, for the first in a series of podcasts designed to give you all a better picture of the law, how it relates to education policy, and how we can understand the law to create safe and welcoming schools for all students. Today, we are talking about the very well-known Supreme Court case, Brown v. Board of Education, and we're talking about this case for a few reasons. First, we are observing the anniversary of the decision. The case was decided on May 17, 1954, so 68 years ago, and we thought there was no better time to examine this iconic, incredibly important case and think about the challenges students families, educators, and advocates continue to face today as we try to pursue schools that are diverse, well and fairly funded, and safe and supportive for all young people. And for those of you who have not heard Paige's voice before, you're welcome. You're in for a treat. She is a brilliant civil rights attorney, and I'm so excited for her to share her thoughts on Brown today. So let's jump right in. Page. I want to start with a bit of background about the case. So let's talk about the history of Brown. Who are the plaintiffs? Thanks so much, Morgan. And wow, I'm so excited to make my Class Notes podcast debut. And what better way to enter into the space than talking about, I think, simultaneously my favorite and least favorite case. And we'll unpack about why that is. Who was involved in Brown? Well, I think most people out there know that court cases are named after the people who filed the case and the people who they sued. So the name Brown comes from Mr. Oliver Brown. He's the father of Linda Brown, a young girl who lived in Topeka, Kansas. And of course, Mr. Brown and his daughter were Black. They sued the Board of Education of Topeka in Kansas, and that's how the case got its name. You probably knew all that, but what you might not have known or what might you might not have been taught is that Brown is actually a consolidation of four cases. And I just think it's helpful and important to name all the really important parties who helped bring this case before the Supreme Court. So there are actually cases filed in Kansas, South Carolina, Virginia, and Delaware, along with a parallel case in Washington, D.C. So all of these cases came before the court at the same time. And I just like to flag that, A, just to acknowledge the importance of the people involved, and also because I think it highlights just how this was really a national question. I think for so many people, we concentrate importantly and understandably on segregation in the U.S. South, but this really was a national problem. And these cases um, and the facts for each case really represent that. And then, you know, you can't talk about Brown without talking about the famous lawyer, the famous organization that orchestrated and labored tirelessly for the case. That's Thurgood Marshall, who was the lawyer, an African-American lawyer, 
who brought the case, who orchestrated the strategy, who helped found the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund to litigate these cases. I mean, we could do, and we probably will, do whole podcasts on Thurgood Marshall's brilliant strategy for challenging the rights and and opportunities for kids to have equal educational opportunity throughout his amazing career and what that looked like when he ultimately reached the bench on the U.S. Supreme Court. He, of course, was the first Black Supreme Court justice. But suffice it to say, he was amazing. We'll talk a little bit about his strategy later in our conversation. And it was really his vision that brought these five groups of plaintiffs together before the Supreme Court. And what exactly were the plaintiffs asking for in the case? Yeah, it's a great question. And the answer is simultaneously super straightforward and yet really nuanced. Brown, at its core, was about the simple recognition that education is a right that, as Chief Justice Warren put it in his unanimous opinion, must be available to all on equal terms. And Chief Justice Warren, of course, was the Supreme Court chief at the time Brown was decided. Although this might seem counterintuitive, and it's sort of strange saying this, that question, whether equality was mandated by the law, had actually long been settled. That goes back to perhaps one of the most infamous cases the U.S. Supreme Court has ever decided, Plessy versus Ferguson. And Plessy, it's the famous Louisiana streetcar case. Black man gets on a streetcar um, that was reserved for whites only. It was a very carefully orchestrated case, which you'll see this is a theme in our conversation. Advocates wanted to test the constitutionality under the 14th Amendment, which had just recently been adopted after the Civil War had ended. And they wanted the Supreme Court to declare that inherently legal separation of the races violated the 14th Amendment. And reaching their really abhorrent and infamous decision, the Supreme Court in Plessy actually wrote, the object of the 14th Amendment was undoubtedly to enforce the absolute equality of the two races before the law. That sounds pretty good, right? Of course, there's more. The Plessy Court said, notwithstanding this fact, in the nature of things, it, referring to the 14th Amendment, could not have been intended to abolish distinctions upon race or, and this is what what we'll get to when we talk about Brown, or to enforce social as distinguished from political equality or a commingling of the races. And this was really critical. And this is why Brown was so transformative and so, you know, just impactful and powerful that Thurgood Marshall and his colleagues had the vision to bring the case in the way that they did. The Plessy Court said, look, Laws permitting segregation don't implicate equality. It's perfectly fine under the Plessy Court's determination to have separate but equal. And they did something else. They said that states have the power to make these decisions and that it's not the Supreme Court's role to get into it. So really, the real question before the Supreme Court in Brown was not about equality and whether it was warranted, but instead, what is the meaning of equality? What does it mean to have equal access to education and equal educational opportunity and whether segregation could ever be legal? Thank you for that. I think that's really important for us to understand, especially given where we are today. So I want to ask, how did Brown fit into sort of a long strategy, a long legal strategy of desegregation, not just of schools, but, you know, of public places in general? Yeah, absolutely. It's one of my, as a person who um, is committed to civil rights from a career standpoint, from a justice standpoint, I love this story because it's a story of hope and optimism sort of ruthlessly in a time of 
terror and a time of really terrible things. And I think that's just helpful framing for this story because it's really about having the vision and the optimism to imagine a world that could be better, even when the circumstances are so challenging. And why were they challenging? Well, we know this, right? Immediately following Plessy, states did not make schools available on equal terms. You know, to the extent that states even made schools available for Black children and Black communities, they suffered from inadequate financing. They had poor educational facilities if they had facilities at all. They had racist curriculum that tried to reinforce notions of white supremacy and inequality. By law, Black students received less funding from tax bases. They had larger class sizes. Their educators, the teachers themselves, were not well compensated and did not have access themselves to education. So these were the conditions that under the Plessy Court were purportedly legal. And this was happening across the country. And this was the story that the Brown plaintiffs were telling the Supreme Court. Um, But how did we get there? The long game that Thurgood Marshall and his colleagues came up with is we have to chip away at this concept of separate but equal. And we have to demonstrate that the facts and the circumstances underlying what was happening in our schools could not be equal. So we'll come back to what that looked like from a legal argument. I'll just note that two things happen right after Plessy that are related to segregation and education. I just think it's helpful to flag this. The first is that there was a Supreme Court case. It was called Cumming versus County Board of Education. It's a Georgia case. And the question before the Supreme Court there in 1899, just a couple of years after Plessy, was whether Black children and Black communities had the right to the same spectrum of educational opportunities as white children. So in, in Cumming, what happened was the local Board of Education closed a Black high school. You don't need a black high school. If you want to go to high school, you can pay to go to a private school or, you know, a vocational school, even though they made a high school available to some white children. The plaintiff sued, said this is not fair, this is not equal. And the Supreme Court said, we're not going to tell the states what they have to provide. And so that was sort of the immediate application of Plessy to education. I just think it's helpful to think about that's where we started and where we got. The second important case that happened a little bit later, but relevant to Plessy, was a case called Ganglam v. Rice. That was in 1927. And that was a case out of Mississippi where a student of Chinese ancestry sued and said, look, it's not fair for Mississippi to tell me I can't go to the white school. It has better resources. I'm not Black and I deserve to go to this school. And the Supreme Court said no effectively saying that, you know, the concept underlying this of of segregation not only applies between the quote-unquote two races, black and white, but that white school administrators and school leaders could bar any other race, including those of Asian descent and others. And so that was really significant. That was in 1927. Beginning in the 1930s, this is when Thurgood Marshall begins his career as a civil rights litigator. It's when the NAACP is really ramping up its operations, both civilly, you know, and organizing and and doing direct actions, and then also founding the Legal Defense Fund. And so the strategy here was really breathtaking. They said, okay, we're not going to engage in K-12 public education. Clearly, the Supreme Court um, is not ready for that. So what did they do? They started attacking segregation and higher education. And this was really interesting because the theory of change here was that because there were so few opportunities for people, anybody to obtain access to higher education, states have to make it available equally to everybody. And so in a series of cases that Morgan can appreciate and that I can appreciate, they were all about law schools. 
There were three of them. And in each of those cases, Thurgood Marshall represented plaintiffs challenging institutions of higher education, barring Black men and women from going to law school and said, look, there's not another law school in the state. You got to admit me to this law school because there's not any other options. And that's not separate. And therefore, it's not equal. And beginning in 1938, the Supreme Court accepted that rationale. It was a series of cases, one in Missouri, and then one in Oklahoma, and then one close to my heart at the University of Texas, Sweat versus Painter. Finally, one last case came out that laid the real foundation for the legal challenge in Brown. And this was a case that our listeners will really appreciate because it was not about a law school, but it was about a graduate school, a case called McLaurin versus Oklahoma State. And McLaurin was a retired educator who wanted to pursue a doctorate in education. And of course, the state of Oklahoma didn't offer that program at any other institution for Black professionals. And this was the first time that the Supreme Court acknowledged that not only did Mr. McLaurin, Dr. McLaurin, have a right to be in the space with his white colleagues in that graduate school, but that it actually stigmatized him as a professional and limited his educational opportunity to not have access to the broader classroom. And this was the real theory that underlied the legal challenge that the plaintiffs brought in Brown. What a perfect segue into the next question I wanted to ask, which is what were the main arguments that were made in Brown? Absolutely. What was challenged in Plessy was this concept of legal equality, right? And Thurgood Marshall knew that courts had been reluctant to sort of go down that path. And so he came up with a new theory of equality. And it really focused on these intangibles. What we saw in the higher ed cases before Brown, and of course, what we were seeing in schools at that time was that, of course, when Black children were being bused to separate locations and dilapidated facilities and overcrowded rooms, they were experiencing a feeling of inferiority, that they were you know, feeling and reinforcing the concept of this legacy of slavery. And so that was really the argument here. And Thurgood Marshall worked together with social scientists, which was this novel approach to lawmaking and made an argument that, look, not only is it immoral, you know, legally not appropriate to separate people for the state to take action to separate people on the basis of race, but it also has this horrible impact on the social, emotional, and educational well-being of kids. And that's yet another reason that this violates the Constitution. And that was the argument. And as Chief Justice Warren ultimately explained in his majority opinion, overturning Plessy, to separate Black children from others of similar age and qualifications solely because of their race generates a feeling of inferiority as to their status in the community that may affect their hearts and minds in a way unlikely to ever be undone. And what was even more amazing was that Chief Justice Warren connected that with the concept of equal educational opportunity. He said, a sense of inferiority affects the motivation of a child to learn. Segregation with the sanction of law, therefore, has a tendency to impact the educational and mental development of Black children and to deprive them of some of the benefits they would receive if the system was racially integrated. And, you know, I just think we have to pause and acknowledge what a breathtaking admission of law that is, that not only what the law should be concerned about is this notion of rigid legal equality, but like what the impact of our decisions, whether they're made by law or policy or whether they're made by individual actors, and the impact that this has on individual children's ability to learn. And that's a conversation that continues to be 
relevant today. We're having it in our classrooms all across the country. Thank you for that explanation. I agree. Truly breathtaking. And on the like very specific and practical side, what did the decision require states, schools to do? Yeah, thank you. And this comes in where the case of Brown is so important and amazing and also can be frustrating and, and perhaps has not, at least how it's been interpreted, um, not lived up to its legacy. So Brown stated a simple rule, which was the concept of separate but equal was not constitutional. And it required schools and states to begin refraining from using segregated practices. So it had the immediate effect of invalidating state laws that separated the races through law. What did it not do? It didn't give schools specific instructions on how to implement that other than saying you can't have legal separation anymore. So it had this wonderful reasoning, a broad mandate, no state can discriminate on the basis of race. And that means you can't legally separate. This had benefits, of course, and spilled over to other public spaces, including public parks and playgrounds that were sponsored by the state. So had this really important sweeping effect, emotional impact for the advocates who worked so long for this, but didn't actually have a lot of substance in terms of how schools were to comply with the court's ruling. So that leads me to maybe uh, one of the lesser known parts of this whole story I have found for people. What was Brown 2? Why was it necessary? Absolutely. And I think lots of people don't realize that there is a Brown 2. So Brown 2 was brought shortly after, a couple of years after the first Brown was handled down. What happened? Well, schools across the country did not, of course, magically begin saying, oh, yeah, you were right all along. This was bad. We should stop doing this. No, of course, what happened after Brown was what you know historians have called massive resistance, where particularly in the South, schools sort of doubled down on their racist and segregated policy. And they said, you didn't tell us how to do this. You can't force us to do it. You know, you think about the historic stories of people like Ruby Bridges, and um, you think about the stories of, you know, governors uh, standing in the schoolhouse blocking entrances. That was really what was happening. And so that happened in uh, Topeka, where, you know, Linda Brown was going to school. And so there was actually a second case filed by Thurgood Marshall. And in that case, the plaintiff said, look, you guys said that this was unlawful. Now you need to make schools comply with it. Give them instructions on how to comply. And here is where the Supreme Court, in many ways, you know, reaffirmed Brown and this concept, but punted and came up with something um, which is now in many ways lived in infamy. This concept of schools must move forward with desegregation with, quote, all deliberate speed. I, you know, haven't had a ticket in a long time. I don't know <laughs> how fast you have to go to go over, go under all deliberate speed. The Supreme Court didn't give a lot of guidance for that. And so what it really did was punt the question to local district courts in terms of enforcing the speed and the contents of schools' compliance with Brown's order to desegregate. And what were a few of the unforeseen consequences of Brown? Yeah, I mean, we talk about a massive resistance. And, you know, I don't know that this is necessarily unforeseen. Maybe it was unforeseen to the extent that it was so effective and, and perhaps continues to this day, right? But Southern politicians really moved to the far right and that local leaders, you know, continue to act swiftly to avoid the requirements of Brown. And this is when we really start to see the rise of concepts like school choice and freedom of choice and crafting laws and policies intentionally designed to even where schools were integrated, 
to subvert the opportunities of Black children and communities. So this is where you begin to see in Austin, for example, where I live, there was a long history of residential segregation. And you began to see schools really capitalizing on um, residential segregation and building up this concept of neighborhood schools. And so the unforeseen consequence of this was that rather than sort of being direct in terms of mandating legal segregation, states use all kinds of policies, including inequitable funding, including zoning and um, assignment to schools to avoid as a practical matter, the requirements of Brown. And we continue to struggle with the impact of that to this day. That was gonna be my final question. From your perspective, like where are we now? Does Brown feel like it was successful, whatever, you know, that might mean. I know that's a very complicated term, but what more must be done now to to realize the purpose of Brown? Brown was such an important case and nothing can ever take away from the significance of the highest court of our land, you know, remedying its mistake decades before of saying that separate but equal was was legal. Um, And so nothing can ever take away from the significance of that victory and the hard work that went into achieving it. Unfortunately, I think we are at a low tide in terms of realizing Brown's legacy. There was probably a decade after Brown where cases were brought that really made a lot of progress on how schools were required to desegregate. You know, remember, this is where we're seeing busing and um, more integration of educators and all kinds of um, really creative and impactful remedies that schools engaged in both voluntarily and under court-ordered requirements. And we really saw this historic surge of integration that correlated, right, with improved educational opportunities. So we had probably 10, maybe 15 years where that was really, really rapid in its escalation. But the Supreme Court changed its composition, you know, of course, in the 80s. And we began to see undermining of Brown's principles culminating in a 2005 case called Parents Involved, where the Supreme Court actually said public schools cannot even engage in voluntary race-conscious remedial efforts under the 14th Amendment. And so that was really the turning point. And what we're seeing now are challenges to this idea that schools can and should be attended to racial disparities and be mindful of that in addressing equity issues. And so I think this is um, a moment to reflect on what Brown required and what it demands of us. And I think it's important to not lose hope. I think constantly about Thurgood Marshall and his vision for um, realizing what he knew to be the true interpretation of the 14th Amendment inequality. And I think now is the time to be thinking about that and that there's more work to do. We will end on those wise and hopeful words. Thank you so much, Paige. This was incredibly illuminating. Thank you all for listening. Please check out more episodes from IDRA's Class Notes podcast. Keep an eye out for more episodes for all you legal gadflies out there. And let us know if there are any topics about the law and education you'd like to hear more about. Thank you so much, Paige. Thanks, y'all. Thank you for listening to IDRA Class Notes. For more information on IDRA and other Class Notes topics, go to www.idra.org. You can also send us your thoughts by email to podcast at idra.org.